I, I gotta say, I'm incredibly excited to be a part of your firm. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, the clients you have are absolutely talk to clients. Your only responsibility is to put meat on the table. You got a girlfriend? I'm, I'm married. I have a <clears throat> wife. Her name's Teresa. She cuts hair. Congratulations. Thank you. Think about Teresa. Name of the game? Move the money from your client's pocket into your pocket. Right. But if you can make a client's money at the same time, it's advantageous to everyone. Correct? <laughs> no. <laughs> Number one rule of Wall Street. Nobody... Okay, if you're Warren Buffett or if you're Jimmy Buffett, nobody knows if the stock is gonna go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles. Least of all stockbrokers, right? Mm -hmm. It's all a Fugazi. You know what a Fugazi is? No, Fugazi. It's a uh, fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi. It's a wazi. It's a woozy. It's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It, it's not fucking real. Right. All right. All right. Stay with me. Hello, welcome to the Extra Credits Plus of the Wolf of Wall Street. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. This is kind of our first real Scorsese episode. It's our That's second wild, Scorsese yeah. this month because yeah. we did a Martin Scorsese movie draft with the Letterbox show on the main so feed. So fun. Uh, which was just so exciting. They were such great guests, Mia and Mitchell. You can go ahead and still vote for the winner of that draft in our Spotify uh, poll and also in the Google form in our description of that episode if you'd like. We are winning by just a little bit right now. Yeah. Which I'm excited about because I was really happy with our team. We got Goodfellas. We got Wolf of Wall Street. We got Casino. I was really just happy to get Alice. Yeah. So. Alice doesn't live here. The and L13. you can go listen about like why both teams really wanted that movie. Um, yeah. And I, I hope one day we will do an Alice doesn't live here pod. If Marty keeps making movies, we will keep adding films to the Patreon. That is that is what I think will happen. So we might get there. Uh, but today, we have Wolf of Wall Street on Patreon. Later this week, we have Killers of the Flower Moon on the main feed. And next weekend, we have Goodfellas on the Patreon. That episode is going to be impossible, but we are going to try our best because <laughs> uh, it's such an epic film. We've been doing so much Scorsese prep. We've been watching so many of his influences. I've been spending so much of my day trying to fit in a second movie somewhere in my mm -hmm. schedule each day of trying to watch an inspiration of Scorsese, which is difficult because he's been inspired by so many films. But I think all of the prep over the past few months and becoming Scorsese completist and watching his inspirations is starting to finally pay off. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to hear more. You talked about it on our Scorsese draft with mm -hmm. the Letterboxd show. But uh, I'm excited to hear even more about as we get into Wolf of Wall Street and to Goodfellas, the Scorsese um, influences, yeah. because I didn't get a chance to watch those and Trey did. But sometimes I would walk through the room to like get a snack while I was studying yeah. and, and reading. <laughs> and I'd be like, whoa, this looks exactly like Goodfellas. And you yeah. can see just even, uh, you know, viewing it and not knowing anything about the story, some of the inspirational shots that he's using. And so I'm, I'm excited to hear about like things that you will recommend to the listeners. Yeah. I mean, with Wolf of Wall Street, we're going to be doing a little bit less with influences and inspirations because this movie has a couple obvious influences like Oliver Stone's Wall Street and maybe uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and some other movies we'll talk about. But Goodfellas is the one we'll, we'll really talk about. Yeah. Scorsese influences. The, like crime thrillers. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure listeners, though, are kind of curious to why we picked Wolf of Wall Street first to talk about in the Scorsese mm -hmm. filmography, because this is probably his most divisive movie. Um, but I think we realized on our Scorsese movie draft 
which I guess maybe is a quick hot take to start this pod if you haven't listened to the draft yet, that maybe, possibly, Wolf of Wall Street is our collective, me and you, like our favorite Scorsese movie together. Hmm. I would think it, it would be Goodfellas. Interesting. Okay. No? Mm, I, I mean, know. I feel like that's probably why we're doing both Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street. And they're also like basically yeah. in the same vein, which I'll talk more about today. I think, I feel like Wolf of Wall Street is more essential to like our show, The Extra Credits, in terms of like the way that we've talked about our sensibilities and what kind of movies we like that have a glaring social commentary in the text. Yeah, no, I mean, okay, that makes sense. I think Goodfellas is a better movie to me. I think it's his his best movie. I, I agree. I don't think that's a hot take. I think yeah. a lot of people would agree with us, but I do get what you're saying in terms of Wolf of Wall Street being a very like uh, fitting movie for the extra credits universe in, yeah. <laughs> in terms of like looking at these movies that we love that have something to say. And it's not that Goodfellas doesn't have something to say. It's just that I think Wolf of Wall Street is a little bit more explicit about it. And that's because Scorsese is building off of his career. Yeah. I also think we on this show have talked a lot about like, we like films that take that leap and try to take that moral responsibility of attacking um, something a little bit uh, culturally divisive, such as the American mm -hmm. dream. Like, Jordan Peele's Nope last year was one of our biggest episodes we've ever had on the show. And I think one of the reasons for that in terms of feedback from listeners was they really appreciated the kind of like deep dive into the subtext of like what Jordan Peele was trying to say about the history of exploitation in the United States and spectacle. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that, those ideas and those themes are integral to The Wolf of Wall Street. Whereas I think Goodfellas is similar, but is more about this kind of like epic rise and fall of this, yeah. you know, found family. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of like this episode and like where we're going to go today, the plan is we're going to get into a little bit of the protein of Martin Scorsese in 2013, a little bit of the protein of the movie itself. And by the way, we're using protein because you're a living plus member. If you're, if you're part of the, <laughs> if you're a part of the Patreon exclusive episodes, if you're on the main feed, you're listening to the first 30 minutes of this too free. If you want full access to this probably very long episode today. You can just go over into Patreon in our description and sign up and become a member of Living Plus. Uh, so we use you're a lot not of, just surviving, everyone. You're living. Yeah. Living Plus. You <laughs> will become a member of our succession-themed uh, Patreon team. Um, but we'll get into Martin Scorsese in 2013. We'll get into the film, and then we're going to get into our awards and most of that conversation with the awards of the Wolf of Wall Street and where we're going to fall in our favorite scenes or our favorite performances is going to be specific to like Patreon listeners because yeah. we, we're going to cap you at 30 minutes. But for everybody in our Spotify Q&A and in our Spotify poll, we have two things for you to do. In our Q&A, you can let us know what your favorite movies about finance are. Like some of ours are like The Big Short, mm -hmm. our Margin Call. Which we'll talk a little bit about today. Hopefully, yeah, I would love to. And then in our Spotify poll, let us know what is your favorite Leonardo DiCaprio role? Because I would like to have the DiCaprio conversation today okay. um, and talk about whether or not this is our favorite versus what is his best performance. Mm. I think that would be interesting just to kind of go off the cuff with that one. This is not a DiCaprio ranking episode, <laughs> but we yeah. can just have some fun, I think, with that. And I'm going to put five of our favorites in the poll. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil right now because okay. I want to talk to you about that off the mic. Also, with the awards, if people don't know, um, if you haven't listened to our Wes Anderson Patreon episodes, um, the first 30 minutes is on the feed. And then, like Trey said, you can listen to the full episodes if you're a member. Uh, but we did Moonrise Kingdom and Fantastic Mr. Fox. So if you listen to all of those, you know we have like awards for our Patreon-specific episodes. Yeah. But when we get to performances, this isn't something that I thought about, but I want to say it now just in case I forget. I want to talk about why Leo is like 
such a uh, an interesting cast for a bunch of his different movies and kind of like what is leo about what's, like what's what is it, his face about yeah what in is terms appealing of like why people cast him, and also right? gross about yeah. leonardo dicaprio yeah. as an idea is interesting <laughs> yeah throughout his whole career because he has that boyish charm but also something gross underneath that's yeah. hard to pinpoint okay we'll we'll save it for yeah, performances we'll, but yes, i just yeah. wanted to remember to say it especially since you um are, are giving that poll to spotify listeners so before getting into wolf of wall street i want to talk about scorsese for yeah. a bit we're going to get into his early life more on Goodfellas, but I do want to, you know, kind of reiterate some points that we talked about on our draft with Letterboxd about why we're covering Scorsese in depth right now, which isn't just because Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out. Like we wanted to dedicate some episodes to his career because mm-hmm. he spent his whole life now to this lifelong project of preserving film yeah. and telling people about the power of cinema and using his platform and connections to not only like recover films of the early 1900s that have needed restorations, but also being like a huge advocate and supporter of international cinema for American audiences. And in preparation for this episode, what I've realized in interviews with Scorsese and Kels, I don't know if you've seen this too, but Martin Scorsese kind of acts like an informal film professor in almost every (laughs) interview he's given. And he has so much, he's so kind of charming and charismatic about movies and the power of them. And it can be pretentious, sure. And it can be a little bit like maybe idealistic. Yes, but there's something really appealing about that, about someone so passionate about the art form. And even though it's a little intimidating to listen to him talk about film history for someone like me, at least, who has thousands of movies on like watch lists throughout Letterboxd, I still appreciate like what he is doing by trying to give American audiences a film knowledge that they don't really have access to unless they're really like searching for it. Right. Unless um, you're plugged in to. Yeah. Which many of us aren't. Yeah. Into also, the matrix yeah. of movies. It's like difficult. You know, we haven't had letterbox forever. Okay. Yeah. And so you would have to do a lot of research to, to look at like, okay, what movies are inspiring these filmmakers? And he does a really good job of pointing people to his inspirations and to other movies that, people should watch um, that they wouldn't maybe have knowledge of before. I think uh, with with him, though, it's so interesting to hear him talk. I haven't watched a lot of interviews, especially with Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. but he. I noticed that he kind of talks like, um, and it makes sense with his religious background, but like a preacher almost, yes. right? Like he repeats a lot of his phrases. <laughs> um, I've noticed that too. In order, cause he's like still thinking sort of about what he wants to say. And, um, I, I do, I like how he talks obviously cause he has so much knowledge, but I do kind of have this, like, uh, this thing in the back of my mind where I'm like, we would not let like women like repeat what they're saying and yeah. like, and like hang on to the conversation in terms of like uh, giving them so much time to like make this point. Like I feel like an interviewer interviewer would like interrupt. Yeah. Um. And I mean, he has earned his like place in as like a, you know, a mammoth of yes. <laughs> like yeah. film. But I just, I kind of noticed that something that I do appreciate though, about Martin Scorsese's interviews is it feels, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like he's like having that revelation kind of in that moment moment every Sometimes. time yeah, right every single time it's so authentic <laughs> yeah and i've heard him repeat himself in interviews before but it, he's either a fantastic actor or he's like unaware <laughs> yeah <laughs> probably a little bit of both i mean he's acted in some of his movies That's uh, true. i love what you said about the religious vibe because i kept going back and forth in his interviews of him kind of ironically coming off as a jordan belfort 
character while also being like <laughs> having this like prophet like rhetoric where he speaks about movies in almost in a divine way yeah. because he's like an encyclopedia of film history, but he's trying to be an advocate and trying to get almost like an apostle for, for film. Yeah. And so I think that is fascinating because whether you're a cinephile or not, it's kind of difficult to see how cheerful he is as a salesman of movies and not kind of be taken over by that. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's very charming. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm willing to join the the cult of the cult of Scorsese, of Scorsese <laughs> movies. Um, well, maybe not the cult of Scorsese because we'll talk about later how his like movies that focus on religion maybe don't work for me. Like they're very personal yeah. projects of him trying to work out his like guilt and his religious journey um, through belief. And I, I mean, I think he still says he's Catholic. I don't know, but anyway, yeah, so he's they gone feel through like a whole journey. Yeah, very personal projects trying to sort all of that out um, for himself. So I, I like like them until the end almost like silence is a good example where I think yeah. we talked about this on the draft where every time we watch it, we're, we forget what the end of the movie is or what certain points of the movie are. And there's so much being said, but ultimately it, it becomes like more sympathetic towards um maybe not in the movie organized religion, but sort of so, basically that's yeah. a weird part of the film. It's like a critique on organized religion and, and the way it infiltrates countries that do not want it there. And then it kind of is sympathetic to the characters that are following through with these tasks. Yeah. Um, so, and it is, and is kind of critical of, of Japan too, which is understandable considering the era, but also, yeah, just a weird, uh, a weird movie all around because it's simultaneously a great film. And then also a very complicated movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, th that's a whole different podcast, yeah. um, especially the way that like it, he is shooting, you know, Adam Driver and um, Andrew Garfield Andrew Garfield as like saviors in another totally. country. It's like, so that's a whole different conversation, but and I think devastating in moments too, at the end, what I was trying to say though, is just, I don't want to fully join the cult, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I will, but I'm thankful for Martin Scorsese um, kind of talking about movies in the way he does his dedication to movies. Yeah. Um, in that sense, I'll join, I'll join that part did of you, the cult. I'll go to those meetings. Did you watch you know? <laughs> the last temptation of Christ yet? No, right? No, the I haven't. Harvey Keitel as Judas, I think. No. Yeah. That is some crazy shit. <laughs> you got to watch that movie. I got to show that one or at least that scene to you at the beginning. Um, yeah. What's interesting about Wolf actually is this movie does have moments of being like one of his religious films mm -hmm. in terms of like what he's saying about capitalism and religion, which we'll get into today, which actually sets up an important conversation, I think, which is trying to figure out the Scorsese project and like what speaks to us about his filmography. And I think what he does best in trying to find like this overarching idea of what he's trying to do uh, is that he has tried to craft a perfect blend of art house provocations into spectacle blockbusters mm -hmm. that are dramas. Yeah. They're not action movies necessarily. They are crime films sometimes. So I guess if you want to fit it into that subgenre and they're definitely like not science fiction films, he kind of stays away from that genre altogether for the most part. Uh, Shutter Island moments aside and maybe some other films. Yeah. But I Shutter think, Island, that's why I said it doesn't feel like his film even. Yeah, I think you said it feels like a, a Nolan movie. And yeah. I think that's a good take. Um, but I think what Scorsese does to try to fit in these provocations into dramas that are big budget films is more impressive than like what, even though I love Denis Villeneuve or Christopher Nolan films, sometimes what those filmmakers are doing or a Kubrick even in some cases. So he's been like prolific for 50 years and trying to get audiences to come to the theaters for 
lack of a better word, adult movies, like like high concept mm-hmm. dramas that I think is so impressive and something that we should be like backing all the time and just like supporting his filmography. Um, and in terms of like a broader context, if, if listeners aren't familiar with his era of filmmakers, there are a lot of filmmakers his age still around today. Some have passed even recently of new wave Hollywood filmmakers who are all famous for like a similar stylized provocation and accessibility in making blockbusters like a Sidney Lumet with mm-hmm. a Dog Day Afternoon or a Network or a Kubrick, a Coppola, De Palma, Lucas, Freakin. There are like 10-ish white guys who were given the opportunity in the 60s and 70s to basically become studios themselves and yeah. almost like IP their names, which is ironic considering what happens in the 80s with blockbuster spectacles mm-hmm. and the way IP takes over American cinema. But all these like new wave guys were trying to outpower the conventional studio system that was watering down movies throughout the 50s and 40s. And so even though Scorsese is in that wave and he's not necessarily singular in that group, what does make him stand out is that he's just lasted longer than most of those guys. I would I would say all of those directors, Martin Scorsese has just lasted, not just in his like age, but his movies have been long lasting. Yeah. And the only director I could really think of that was maybe in lockstep with him coming from a specific era and lasting this long is not an American filmmaker, but it is one of our favorites on this podcast. And that's Ridley Scott. And I don't know if that's like a hot take or not, but he does seem like the filmmaker that is in conversation with the Scorsese project of trying to do big spectacles with big ideas. But Ridley Scott kind of goes between like war films to dramas to science fiction spectacles, Mm -hmm. whereas Scorsese kind of sticks to what he knows, which is why people love him in a less complicated way. Because sometimes people will go, you know, I love every other Ridley Scott movie because he takes so many shots. Yeah. I actually thought you were going to bring up Spielberg uh, because Mm -hmm. he also has a huge track record of bringing American audiences to the theater. Uh, But Obviously, Spielberg is so different than Scorsese in that he often, if not almost all of his films, have like an optimistic tone yeah. um, and ending. So, so I mean, Spielberg makes more sense to me and why his movies are so successful. But I mean, Scorsese actually, interestingly, even though he tells a lot of like really gritty, um, fast paced, like often crime, you know, mm-hmm. framed movies, he is also telling kind of like moralistic you know, uh, stories where he has some sort of moral point, I think coming from his religious background, right? They're cautionary tales. Yeah. He has like a strong ethical spine, like backbone that he's working off of. Yeah. So even though he's doing it through the lens of making people feel uncomfortable and like, there's a lot of great editing that, that comes with that to like hold on scenes really long where you feel a lot of discomfort or you're like locked into a character. Mm -hmm. Obviously there's like far more discomfort. And I think he does a really good job of, making a point of and making people feel like, what am I feeling uncomfortable with in this movie as I follow this character? But I think Ridley Scott is interesting uh, that you bring him up and like people liking every other movie. And the reason that I think we maybe like Ridley's movies more is like Scorsese still has some sort of um, like, this is, it's kind of like the end chapter moment, right? It's like this kind of, here's the moral message of my story which i i enjoy because it feels like a full epic most of the time when he's making a movies a a movie most of the time Mm -hmm. um but ridley is more like no like it's all over like you know like he's like (laughs) so nihilistic like Uh, like blade runner like the movies and and stories that he's interested alien like uh, he's just he wants to look at like the exploitation of people like 
Even yeah. though Scorsese's movies might be more grittier on the surface, I think that Ridley kind of like is is taking home these messages that are a little bit harder to to consume. They both have deeply uh, guilty religious backgrounds, though. Oh, really? Weirdly I, enough. I don't know, I guess, a lot about Ridley's background. Well, we're going to be talking about Ridley a lot soon because of Napoleon, which I'm really excited for. Yeah. Um, but with Scorsese, I think what you said is totally true. There is something... Um, not idealistic, not optimistic, not anything no, positive, yeah. but there is something about like his movies trying to tell the audience to find their faith again and they'll be restored. Mm. And that's where they've lost. They've committed sin and they've lost their way in life. Yeah. And it's almost like his movies have a through line of needing to find um, faith again. Mm -hmm. And Ridley Scott is like finding faith is what stunts men to begin with. Yeah. And that is more interesting to us as just individual people. So I understand why like people's sensibilities probably more align with Martin Scorsese's because everyone comes from different environments or different backgrounds. And obviously we don't come from deeply religious backgrounds, but I think if you do, Scorsese's movies are just going to speak to you more. Yeah. Well, I mean, but even with Ridley, like it's not necessarily faith in terms of organized religion. He also looks at like the narratives that we tell ourselves or sure. like looking at dogma in different senses, like in culture. Yeah. But, but yeah, like I think what you said is, is all true about Scorsese. I feel like, you know, I, I might've mentioned this a second ago, but I'm just like forgetting because we're having really lofty conversations about the biggest filmmakers of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what is impressive about Scorsese that Ridley Scott does not share, unfortunately, because he's had just a weirder career, which is Scorsese has not sacrificed. I don't believe he has like his own personal philosophies for lack of a better word to make his movies. Hmm, I think okay. he's really tried to stay true to what he believes in that moment in time. And Ridley Scott has sacrificed some of his, <laughs> maybe his like political interests, even though he does platform Ridley Scott specifically in comparison to Scorsese, I think Ridley Scott platforms more marginalized identities, you know, historically than Scorsese has. And that has been a, an, an often criticism against Scorsese's filmography, which we will get into today on mm -hmm. Wolf. Um, I do think Ridley Scott has made some weirdly politically like military specific movies that are confusing to me, which we'll get to next month. But <laughs> yeah. with Scorsese, he's really tried to hold on to what I think a lot of film fans called like a neo-realist sensibility that he like he's fallen in love with um, cinema, Italian cinema, cinema specifically from the 30s and 40s mm -hmm. that are that is obsessed with trying to authentically depict a working class. And like that is what Scorsese's lifelong project has been and trying to show a working class in the most cinematic way possible and to really create socially and politically thoughtful films that he has to exaggerate and make absurd in certain aspects enough in storytelling to make them more entertaining. But also he makes them like anarchic in the technical way ways. Like mm -hmm. we talked a lot about Schoonmaker, Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor of most of his films yeah. after Raging Bull and Robbie Robertson's score in a lot of his movies. Like he crafts a team around him. He molds, the, he finds a way to cultivate these stories about normal families or found families that have this really tragic journey, uh, a yeah. really tragic rise and fall. And these are family dramas, to be honest, like a lot of these movies. If you look at Goodfellas and just like look at its bare bones, it is like a found family drama. And he, then he tries to make it as kind of like hard to look away, like a car crash as possible. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, sort of entertaining. And I think that style of the form is pretty singular and his like 50 year attempt at, at fighting back against conventional studio movies. Yeah, well, we talked a little bit about this on our draft again, but I think uh, something that I, I didn't really talk about in terms of Thelma Schoonmaker 
is the the way that she edits the films. Um, she was talking about how like oftentimes people who are in the industry would look at the cuts that she makes mm-hmm. uh, as jagged or like bad cuts. Yeah. But she wants and her and Scorsese have like kind of had this philosophy in editing films of like they want to slap viewers in the fr- face. Yeah. Uh, that's like a <laughs> quote from her. Yeah. Um, and so this the fast paced editing kind of like the abrupt cutting and uh, that then also paired with like shots that maybe go on a little too long, right? Mm-hmm. Like they create this sense of uneasiness, like the, again, the close-ups on characters faces or like the disorienting shots um, that they, they play with of like, you were supposed to be focusing on this, but I'm, fo- I'm putting the camera on something else. Yeah. Um, that is like really singular. And she also talked about how uh, as an editor, not only do you have to have a strong discipline, but you have to have a musical sense and she had like musical training, but um, that really comes through. There is like, there is a, a true tempo that yeah. you feel in all the movies that makes them feel like they are like driving at a hundred miles per hour, but they have beats, right? Like you can tell where the chorus is in a lot of them, right? Nice. And, um, <laughs> nice music terminology. No, I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but, but like, you're also saying, I think like paired with that, they, they met, uh, at NYU, I yeah. guess in like Scorsese last year and they've been working together ever since, but, uh, they did work a lot on like documentary and like they have a lot of documentary techniques in in their pocket. So they're able to create exactly what you're saying, this kind of heightened reality and make the film still feel really grounded and like have this gritty realness, even in a very heightened story. Something that um, was really funny to me too, besides editing, I was listening to Scorsese in an interview about acting and what he will accept and not accept in a take. Mm-hmm. Apparently a uh, schoonmaker said this actually. Um, so I don't, I don't know if Scorsese said this somewhere else, but schoonmaker said that he will not put a move, put a take in the movie that he does not believe. He has to believe it, which obviously a lot of other filmmakers will sure. do too. Yeah. But um, he says that's that, a privilege, by the way. That's yes, a big budget yeah, guy right. talking. I know to that's you. a lot yeah. of takes, yeah. Um, especially on film. But he said one of those things is that he won't let his actors move his eyebrows. So if they're his what? if eyebrows are moving, it doesn't seem realistic, and he feels like he doesn't believe the take. And he wants you to latch onto the characters and like they're living a real life. Apparently, that's one of his tactics. Um, By the way, Scorsese, great eyebrows. Great, great eyebrows. Cold yeah. take. As a person, objectively, with massive eyebrows, you do have massive eyebrows. Yeah, uh, in, in the best way possible. <laughs> you and Scorsese will never lose your eyebrows. Yeah, but I mean, but to to the point of like putting things in only that he will believe. You see a lot of messy shots like in Wolf of Wall Street when um, his first wife, I forget her name, um, finds him in the car with Margot Robbie, right? Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of takes where the car is there and then it's not there and then she's shutting the door and like it's so mixed up um, timeline wise, like the car has already driven away, but Mm -hmm. then there's a lot of shots with the car still there while she's yelling at him. Did you notice that? At yeah, all? no, I didn't notice yeah. that, but well, that's so, the kind so of... there's a lot of like things that would be considered like bad editing or, you know, what people would be like, this like shouldn't be in there. Like this throws off the, the whole like reality of the story. But I think because you're so locked into the performances and he is operating on this, this whole, like, um, I will not put anything in that I, I really don't believe in, like in, I, in this character's reality. Yeah. It makes the movies feel like you're so sucked in. Yeah, you're immersed into this drug-ridden world, yeah. too. Like, you feel like it is like a high experience. You're on the high of Wolf of Wall Street. And yeah. the editing has a lot to do with that. It's a great point. Um, 
But just to kind of like explain further about why we picked this movie first, I really wanted to do The Wolf of Wall Street first with Scorsese's filmography because I do think this movie is kind of the culmination of Scorsese's personal personal mission. Yeah. And I think a lot of people jump to Goodfellas or maybe Casino, which are movies that we love. But this, to me, is the epic that is kind of the encapsulation of what he's been fighting to make his whole entire career, which is a massively high-budget, widely distributed across the globe, across continents, transgressive blockbuster yeah. about like this allure of the American dream and how it is actually an intoxicating nightmare and is advocating for like a modern form of the gospel and like capitalism replacing religion. And I think this movie is just like what he has been working toward, like getting a massive budget to make something that would have broken American brains in 1945 in the middle of like highly restrictive American films. And I think, you know, we, we, we don't really have a lot of politically minded American films like this. And I think since Wolf of Wall Street, Politically minded films have been kind of suppressed in a weird way, especially mm-hmm. in biopics where, you know, you get a billion dollar movie like Oppenheimer this year that is a biopic, which is obviously a huge deal. We'll probably be up there with Best Picture next to hopefully Killers of the Flower Moon yeah. and Barbie alike. Mm-hmm. Um, in mm-hmm. Come on. Hi. Hello there. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening so far. And hopefully you are enjoying yeah. <laughs> the episode so far. I feel like maybe if you made it this far. They got it this far. They're yeah. having a good time. I mean, let's hope. But to access our full conversation, you can go to the description of this episode to join our Patreon community, the Extra Credits Plus. Yes. And for only $5 a month, you can get access to our full catalog of Patreon exclusive episodes. Hope to see you there. With a common denominator. Keep it up for me. The money comes in, the parade comes to town. Going down Broadway is a one way street.